Today's scripture reading comes from Luke chapter 7, verses 36 to 50. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the word of the Lord. Good afternoon, New Hope. Uh, it's a joy and a pleasure to be able to be with you all this afternoon uh, and to sing and to worship of our risen Savior. Uh, and as we, as we heard that word read, it is a beautiful reality as we think about who this Jesus is, who this Savior is. Uh, I first want to begin actually by saying, uh, there, just want to express there's a warm hug for you all from Fordham Community Church and the saints there. Uh, we are thankful for you and your partnership, for your prayers, uh, and for the way that as you've partnered with us, it has helped advance the gospel uh, in the Bronx. Uh, and we're thankful for that. I'm also uh, very encouraged in the way that you are uh, loving your pastor and giving him some time to refresh uh, and him and his wife and their family to be able to uh, take a break. That's just a beautiful and such a good reality. You know, this passage that we just read uh, makes us think, makes me think of things that we think we know things that we think we are familiar with, things that we become so accustomed to but can easily begin to overlook. It, 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 uh, it makes me think about how we sometimes think we know some things but we get completely wrong. 
And, 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 and as I began to think about this passage and to think about specifically the way there's two different interactions with Jesus, the Pharisee and this woman who is called a sinful woman, it made me think about what other things do we think we're familiar with but we actually get wrong. You know, let me just throw out a couple. At my church, I like to have uh, the folks say some stuff back to me. That's just the way we work culturally. So if you, you know, if you interact with me, it's gonna make this time real good both ways. All right. So, so have you ever heard this? Dairy is not good when you have like a stuffy nose. Anyone heard that before? Just by a show of hands. Why not? What? what why have you heard that? Because what can it do? It makes it worse, right? It makes the mucus worse. Well, I did a little bit of research on that. Apparently, it's not actually scientifically true. There's nothing about dairy that actually increases mucus production in your body. So, so every time my wife has told me, hey, don't drink a glass of milk because I had the sniffles, it's not, there's nothing basis upon which that has base. Uh, uh, all right, how about this one? How about this one? The reason that bulls, you know, in the, in the matador has like a big red uh, fabric is because it makes the bulls enraged and angry. And so they, they actually want to get more aggressive. Anyone heard that one before? Okay. What do you think? You guys know where it's going. They're, they're not bothered. They, they're colorblind. They don't even see color. As a matter of fact, as a matter of fact, what actually bothers them is the movement of the fabric. The thing could have been green. It doesn't matter. It's just that the fact that the movement of the fabric does actually create enragement in them. Or, I think we all heard this, human beings do not uh, only have five senses. But, but, but when you actually begin to think about scientifically, there's more. There's a sense of balance, a sense of acceleration, sense of pain, body position, relative temperature. So all kinds of other senses that we weren't taught when we were young in school. Or uh, this one is an interesting one, that the Great Wall of China is visible from space. Anyone ever heard that one before? Not visible from space. Instead, what is visible is lights in cities, but you can't see the Great Wall of China from space. And this one is very applicable to those around the New York City area. Yeah, I don't know if you've ever heard this, but if you dropped a penny from the Empire State Building, that it, it actually could land somebody and be deadly. Anyone ever heard that one before? Well, you already know the pattern, but, but it's, it's not true. It, it, as a matter of fact, they actually think that if you drop the penny because of the different wind factors involved, it would feel nothing much more than a little sting, like, ow. And that's all it would do. See, there are things we think we know that we become so familiar with that if we don't look at them more intently, we can actually get wrong. And my whole goal with this sermon, really, and with us looking at this passage together, is to not get wrong what we are looking at in Jesus. To make sure that we can properly be positioned to respond to him because we are adequately familiar with who he is and what he has done. There are actually two ways to view Jesus in this passage. And the two correlate well with where we tend to land uh, as people. There are, there are really two kinds of people, and it represents us here in this text. There, there are those who, who kind of, uh, who, who are maybe familiar with Jesus, right? At a, at a sort of hand, I can touch you from afar, I'm cordial with Jesus. 
And then there are people like the sinful woman who are clearly aware of who they are and of who Jesus is. And so they can delight in him quite clearly. It, the entire passage of the book of Luke leading up to this passage has been asking this very basic question. Who is this Jesus? In Luke chapter 7, verses 8 and 9, we're told that this Jesus is the one who has the authority to heal, even without being presently like in person where he is actually causing a miracle to happen. In verse 15 uh, through 17, we are seeing how, how this Jesus is able to strike fear as he raises someone from the dead. And so, and so people are like, God has visited his people because he's able to raise the dead. In verse 19, we see the disciples of John the Baptist are asking, uh, are you the one we're looking for? And Jesus responds to them by telling them, uh, tell John the Baptist that what you're seeing, the dead are raised and the blind receive sight and the poor have good news proclaimed to them. All of it to underscore this Jesus is important, is unique. He is the God-man that came to save. This section is asking, who is Jesus? And the interesting thing about the passage, one of the Pharisees asked them to eat with him. Is, is exactly, it begins to elevate and uh, show to us how there's different ways of viewing Jesus. And who is a Pharisee? Right? Pharisees uh, are a religious leader and teacher who would have been well respected among the people because they would have been one of the main teachers in the synagogue. And, and here in this passage, it says, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And, and that phrase, reclined at table, actually indicates to us that it probably would have been a somewhat of a formal meal. Something similar to what happens in the Sabbath meal, right? It's a celebratory meal that happens after uh, the invited speaker uh, spoke in the synagogue. And then it's like, hey, this is what I have to do cordially as part of my cultural kind of practice. I got to invite you to come and, and invite and, 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 and eat a meal with us. This was expected custom that whoever taught at the synagogue, out of convention, just out of normal practice, would be invited to the home for the sake of having a meal. And I want you to notice how the Pharisee responds to Jesus. He, he considers himself to be a Pharisee who is honored among people. Right? So he is, he's considered a very devoted, very righteous, very religious person. And because of that, he is honored as such among the people as a teacher. So he views himself as a man who's got some things going his way. He views himself as a man who's got good moral standing in the community. He views himself as a person to be respected and to be honored. He viewed himself above the common sinner. I mean, just notice the way he interacts uh, when this woman, who is considered a sinner, comes into his house unexpectedly and without any invitation. He, 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 he is blinded by his own view of himself, and that view of himself does not allow him to see who Jesus is. His inability to see himself as a sinner means that he's not able to properly see who Jesus is as a savior. He is clearly aware of just how sinful she is in this passage. 
but not so much of his own sin. It blinds him to seeing Jesus because in order to qualify to properly approach and see Jesus for who he is, a person must be aware that they are a sinner before him. It makes me think, aren't there instances where you and I can, no matter how long you've been walking in the church, no matter how long you've known Jesus and, and, and have embraced the gospel, aren't there times where we can begin to feel like the Pharisee? Or we can begin to slip into seeing Jesus like the Pharisee. We can, out of sort of cordial niceness and social convention, be inviting to Jesus out of, you know, a general respect that Jesus is owed. There's a dry, cold love in our hearts towards him. We can be like the Pharisee when we think our reputation secures something for us. We can be like the Pharisee when we look out and say, well, I'm not as bad as them. We can be experts, PhDs in everybody else's sin, and amateurs in our own. Problem is, when you view yourself in that way, you are also missing out on who Jesus is. Look at how he viewed Jesus in this passage. What I'm trying to show you is that it was related to how he viewed himself. It was his own self-righteousness that did not allow him to properly see who Jesus is. Just just look at what and the interaction between the Pharisee and Jesus. Jesus comes in, reclines at table, and and, and, uh, as this woman comes in, she has all this expression of emotion, wiping his feet and weeping and, and cleaning with her tears and her hair, his feet, and anointing him with oil. And yet Jesus later tells us, as he addresses Simon the Pharisee, he says, listen, you you interacted with me, and you did not wash my feet. You didn't go out of your way to honor me. He he, he tells him after this parable, hey, listen, you, you didn't wash my feet, which would have been a standard expression of hospitality in the culture. You, you know, uh, uh, you're walking around in Jerusalem or in the surrounding towns, and, and, and as you're walking around, you're walking on dirt road, not, not like, you know, concrete roads like what we walk on. And, and the thing is, I don't know if you've ever been in the countryside, but there's animals, and, and the animals sometimes, you know, they drop some stuff on the ground, uh, what's not so clean. And, 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 and so when you came into a home, it was an expression of hospitality to have a servant or to you yourself wash the feet of the person coming into the home. He tells him, you didn't wash my feet. He, you invited me to the home, but you didn't care to show me any hospitality. He says, you didn't greet me with the kiss. He, he, there's a dryness to the way that the Pharisee is interacting with Jesus. He says, you didn't anoint my head with oil. He doesn't go out of his way to honor Jesus. That's how he views Jesus. He views Jesus as it's okay to be cordial with Jesus. It's okay to be nice to Jesus. It's okay to have all the social conventions that we pay respect to, to this Jesus. But I'm not going to get silly about my love for him. I'm not going to go out of my way to honor him. And the reason is because he's unsure of Jesus being nothing more than a religious teacher. 
I want you to notice in verse 39, he says, Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who was touching him, for she is a sinner. See, he's, he, he's unsure that Jesus is not only uh, a religious teacher, but he's not even sure that, he's, uh, I'm not sure that this man is a prophet. If he, ha- if he was a prophet, if he had come from God, if God was behind him in what he's doing, he surely would have known that this woman who is touching him is actually a sinner. The amazing thing about this passage is that almost, I love the way Jesus kind of checks him. Uh, See, Simon doesn't say his thought out loud. You notice that? It's an internal thought. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself. Just, you seen that with me? And then Jesus says to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. He said, say it, teacher. And he begins to address the very thing he's thinking. Oh, he's much more than a prophet. But let me show you that I am a prophet because I know your thoughts. You see what's happening there? This Jesus is not only a prophet. He is the God-man who knows internally who we are. But the Pharisee is missing it. He's cordial. He's nice to Jesus. He's just not in love with Jesus. I'll go to church. I'm just not in love with Jesus. I'll do some of the religious things. I'm just not in love with Jesus. I'll, I'll do some of these nice things to Jesus. I'll invite him over. I'm just not in love with him. Why? Because he doesn't see himself as a sinner. He doesn't see himself as a man who's in need of a savior. And so he can't see the savior sitting in front of him. I don't know uh, if you guys use social media, but there are some things you can only appreciate when you position yourselves in the right way, in the right angle. Uh, you guys remember, or have you ever seen some of these viral posts that go viral, and, and it's like, you know, you can see, uh, you know, a similar photo. Everybody's looking at the same thing, but it's like, it's like okay, what do you see, and what do you see? You, you, you guys have had those experiences? And, and, and it goes crazy in culture because everybody's seeing different colors. You know, there was that one famous dress where it was like, you know, a gold or, or purple. I don't know what the colors were, but... But, but, you know, and the thing is that there are some things that, that only you can see them and understand them and distinguish them when you kind of put yourself at the right angle, aren't there? Uh, and and, and I, I, every time someone, one of those comes to me, it's like, look really hard, and it just looks like two bottles, and you look present, oh, it's two, like, people kissing, you know? To, it's like, oh, that's really what, what I was looking at. Friends, this passage is like that. Until you position yourself correctly, we cannot appreciate who Jesus is. And how do you position yourself correctly? It is to realize that you are dead in your sin apart from Jesus. Because when you see Jesus correctly from the right angle, he is a beautiful, delightful Savior to be loved and worshipped with all that we have. And it's such a clear example in how the sinful woman responds to Jesus. It's a clear, drastic difference, isn't there? (laughs) She views herself completely different than he does. She comes in... And she's a sinner. That's what she's known as in the neighborhood, in the city. And so she doesn't presume that she can fix her reputation unless somebody else does something else for her. She just comes in having had that reality and that baggage. Uh, uh, The verse 37 says she was a woman of the city. At least in the ESV translation. 
She, she was considered one of those women from the street, you know? Uh, I minister in the hood uh, and in the Bronx, and, 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 and so it's, it's easy to say, oh yeah, she's you know, one of these women from the street. And, and there's a whole bunch of connotations and baggage that come with that, right? That's the kind of reputation, the kind of, kind of hole that she was already framed into. She was a sinner. She had been branded as undesirable and as impure and sinful in the entire eyes of the community. And she realized, unless somebody does something for me, I can't fix my reputation because I can't wipe away the things I've done. I can't wipe away my guilt before God. Notice the illustration Jesus uses to really illustrate through his story the difference between uh, Simon and this woman who is considered a sinner. See, Simon is dry, though cordial. She is doing and breaking every social convention because she's in love. And, and the reason, the, the illustration Jesus gives to explain the behavior is to say she is aware she had a lot of debt. She is aware that she had debt that she could not pay back. And yet someone forgave her the debt. And so she's in love. So how does she view Jesus, realizing herself to be a sinner? Verse 38, she comes in, standing behind her and at his feet, weeping. She began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. She comes with tears and affection. She comes with brokenness and, 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 and just the emotion jumps at you. I, man, if, if that doesn't cut you, I don't know what ought to cut us. She, she wipes his feet clean with her tears and her hair. She goes beyond the nicety of like, hey, let me get a little bit of water and let me get a little bit of, uh, uh, you know, uh, some kind of fabric to wipe his feet. She says, I don't have any of that, but I have my hair and I have my tears. She brings the only thing she does have in the material world, the flask of ointment, which would have been by far the most expensive item she had. In similar stories, for example, Mark chapter 14, verses 3 to 4, we're told that a similar flask of ointment by a similar woman who uses it as an expression of worship to Jesus is, is worth years of salary. We're not talking about a day, two days, a month, years of salary. And she does this, breaks it to anoint him for a moment. The thing that is most valuable to her, that would have literally fed her for years, she uses it in a moment's time just to honor and express worship and adoration and thanksgiving to Jesus. She breaks every social convention in order to honor and worship Jesus. She came to a home she was not invited to. I don't know when was the last time you just walked into a home you were not invited to. You just kind of walked in and said, hey, I'm here, right? And, and then you make the biggest scene possible as everybody's at the table eating. I just, I just take out my hair and I start with tears and I start wiping his feet. She is breaking every social convention. As a matter of fact, in, in her time, for a woman to have uh, had her hair loose and to have been seen with her hair loose in public actually was grounds for divorce. 
She breaks every social convention. Why? Because she is completely in love with Jesus. And she is willing to do anything to honor him. These are two very drastic, completely different ways of responding to, interacting with Jesus. But what accounts for the difference? Notice how in verse 41 to 50, Jesus tells the story of a moneylender who had two debtors. One who owed 500 denarii and the other who owed 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. None, now, which of them will love him more is a, is a question that Jesus poses to Simon, the, the Pharisee. And Simon answers, the one, I guess, you know, for whom he canceled the larger debt, I suppose that one. Uh, and, 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 and Jesus tells him, of course, yeah, you're right. You've judged rightly. Which just tells me, man, there, there's a way to know the right truth and be completely affected incorrectly by it. There's a way to, to have and be able to give the right answer, and yet to have, as you have the right theory, the wrong heart posture, isn't there? It, there's a way to know right doctrine, but wrong heart posture towards Jesus. He, he's able to answer logically, of course, the person who's owed more debt. What he's not realizing is that Jesus is saying, the reason you're so cold towards me is because you don't realize you have a debt. The difference between the two interactions, between the Pharisee and the sinful woman, is that one is overwhelmed with gratitude for what she has been forgiven, and the other one does not even know that forgiveness is being offered. The difference is that this woman, who had no inclinations to her own righteousness in and of herself, is clearly, with clear-eyed aware, that this man who is sitting at this table is not just a man. That he is God himself who could forgive her the full scope of her guilt and who could restore her standing before God. And so she is overwhelmed with gratitude and thanksgiving and worship. Because she realizes her salvation is sure and secure in him. I love the way Jesus drives this point home. I, I, there's a small gesture he does in this passage. In verse 44. He's speaking to Simon, but he turns toward the woman. Then, turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. Can't you taste and even like feel through Luke's writing the tenderness and compassion of Jesus? He's speaking to Simon as he looks at her with tenderness and with love. She's, he's aware of her guilty conscience and her guilty reputation. And yet he ministers to her by saying, Listen, her love is an expression of how much she's been forgiven. Her love is an expression of the clear-eyed awareness that she has salvation offered to her, even though she could not earn it or purchase it. 
Her love is an expression. She has tasted the mercy of God. She was convinced by faith that this man was more than a mere man. He is the God-man. One good Friday would die to pay for sins for every single one of those who would trust in him. That he would resurrect from the dead as an affirmation that her sins, by placing his faith, her faith in him, were completely forgiven and paid for. And so Jesus affirms that truth. Your sins are forgiven. Whether you are a believer or not, I, I'll tell you what my goal is, and what my goal is with my own heart, is I want to be like this sinful woman. I want to respond to Jesus like her. Because every time we're nonchalant and kind of cold with Jesus, unmoved to great worship to Jesus, it's because we're no longer realizing just how much we were forgiven. Every time our heart grows cold and ungrateful, it is because we have forgotten the goodness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we have to re be reminded of just what our debt is. So what does the Bible actually teach us about sin? Like, about us? Clearly the Bible teaches we were created to reflect God and that sin is to have transgressed against a holy God who is good. So that what it means to be a sinner is to not compare yourself with other people, but to compare yourself with God. To stand in His presence and to realize that because He is holy and we were created in His image to reflect Him and we do not live perfectly in reflection to Him, we are sinners who deserve judgment. That our sin is evil because we have not intentionally lived in that way. And that our debt deserves judgment. Uh, there's a passage that I think illustrates the gravity of judgment. There's a lot of passages, but, but, but I think of Lamentations, chapter 2, verse 2, and verse 5. Where this phrase is said to a people who are experiencing the judgment of God because they had neglected to worship God as God alone. That's that in the Old Testament, the people of Israel were sent into exile because they had been unfaithful to their covenant with God. And so God tells them, if you are unfaithful to me and you turn away from following me and worshiping me as the sole God, then you will also bear the curses of the covenant. And in Lamentations, they are living that in the, at its full heat, like at the highest and peakest moment. Lamentations 2, 2, uh, hey, hey, the Lord has swallowed up without mercy all the habitations of Jacob. And in Lamentations, it describes how mothers, good mothers, were driven to the point of even eating their own children. Because God's judgment was upon them. And they had removed every ounce of mercy in that moment. So the question I ask is this, what does it look like when God comes against you without any restraint? What does it look like when God, who is a consuming fire, pours out the full scope of his wrath on those that do deserve it without any restraint? It would remove every sense of safety, comfort, and refuge 
that you can experience from, from common grace things or special grace things. It would remove everything that had to do with public honor. It would only leave you with public shame. It would remove any strength internally. It would remove any future or hope. It would leave you with ever multiplying, present, increasing conscience agony over your sin. And that's what hell is. And the thing is that you and I might think that a person who experiences the wrath of God would be angry with God. And yet I think we would be wrong because that's not what the Bible teaches us. Lamentations 1.18. The Lord is right, for I have rebelled against his word. On that day, a person receiving judgment will not say to God, hey, you're acting wrongly. But we will agree with every single second of God's judgment. You might say, Ramsey, that's kind of drastic. But the thing is that our sin is an eternally, against an eternally good God. I don't know, I, I, I like to illustrate this point this way. You ever read in the news, it always used to confuse me when I was younger. You ever read in the news, you know, somebody was sentenced to like, you know, a thousand years in jail? Uh, or two lifetimes, or three lifetimes, and you're kind of like, I remember being young as a teenager, hearing that, and I'm like, I mean, they're not going to live that long. We all know it. I mean, I don't under, what does that mean? Why are we doing that? If we said one lifetime, until they die, that's it. That makes sense. Well, why are we saying a thousand years, ten thousand years, two lifetimes? I mean, they're not going to live that long. But the judgment system is trying to communicate something, right? isn't it? trying to say, if they committed a particular kind of act, the just thing, in order to represent the value of maybe, of, let's say it was murder, and if 10 people murdered, to communicate the value of each of those lives, they need to be sentenced to that. Friends, we've sinned against an eternally good God. That means that our sentence must be eternal. And he is good without any sin. That must mean it must be the worst kind of punishment that we can experience for all of eternity. All I'm trying to do is to help you to feel your debt. That's all I'm trying to do. I'm trying to help us to feel our debt before God. Because of our sin, that's our standing. But at that moment is when you can savor just how good God is, can't you? At that very moment is when we can actually appreciate how overwhelmingly good Jesus Christ is because in spite of what we deserve, he offers to forgive all of our debt. And he has, in Christ Jesus, forgiven us all of our debt. Friends, you are in Christ today, and you have no guilt before God, and there is no condemnation before him because of Jesus. And so having no pretensions to our own righteousness outside of Jesus, having no claim to it, all it leaves us is great gratefulness to him because he forgave us when we did not deserve it, because he has taken on the full scope of God's wrath, because he has received all of his judgment in our place. On the cross, he paid it all. And so all we have is Christ. Because he has been our salvation. And God the Father, on the basis of his judgment, has canceled our debt 
And the beauty of what has happened is that he's transferred to us the perfect righteousness of Jesus. I want you to notice one last thing and then I'm done. Jesus tells her, your sins are forgiven. And then at the end, in verse 50, he says to her, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. I don't want to presume that all of us, either tuning in online or in person, have seen Jesus with the right angle. That we have all realized, not that we can only need to be cordial with Jesus, but that we need to realize that we are, apart from him, dead in our sin. And I want to remind you, how can you too be forgiven of your sins? It says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. It's amazing. How is it that we receive this good promise when we reach out with the hands of faith and we say, God, here I am. I, I am not able to save myself, but your promise is that in Christ Jesus, you will forgive all of my sins and I receive it by faith. Does my faith need to be tremendous and great and powerful and impressive? No, it just needs to be as small as a mustard seed. I, can, I just need to trust him when he says, I will forgive you at all by faith. If you're a Christian here today, fight for a God-given joy that fuels a life of fresh worship because he has forgiven you. If you're a guest or a non-believer, then I implore you, be forgiven of your sins and taste the mercy of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus, that you did not withhold him, but you sent him for us. And that as you sent him for us, we can be forgiven of all of our iniquities. We can be restored to you. We can be treated as those who, even though are in our sin, can be accounted as completely righteous. But I pray that you would make us the kind of people who are grateful, delightful, thankful, full of joy even in hard days. Why? Because Christ Jesus has saved us. We ask you these things, Father, in the name of your Son. Amen.